Hi, I'm Eric Goldwine, and you're listening to the Nursing Home 411 podcast by the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. Resonant-to-resonant incidents can have devastating consequences, not only for the residents involved, but also for their families. But why do these incidents happen? On this episode, I'm joined by gerontologist Elon Caspi, author of Understanding and Preventing Harmful Interactions Between Resonance with Dementia. In the interview, we chat about the causes of resonant-to-resonant incidents, how these incidents relate to neglect, risk mitigation strategies for families, and the documentary Fighting for Dignity. Remember to check out the show notes for a link to Elon's book, which is launching in August, and for other references mentioned in the interview. Enjoy the show. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. I'm here with uh, Elon Caspi. Thanks for coming on the Nursing Home 411 podcast. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me to speak with you about the book today. So, Elon has a book coming up in August. Uh, the author of Understanding and Preventing Harmful Interactions Between Residents with Dementia. Uh, and he also is the co-director of a film, which we'll discuss later. But I want to start by asking asking you a little bit about how you got into this field. Now you preface your book with a, I thought it was a fantastic anecdote about how you got into aging. So you're in Israel, you've just been discharged from the required army service. And while you're searching for a job, you're shown a list of hiring organizations. Uh, Can you tell me what happens next? Well, you really did your homework. That's great. So I, I was just discharged from uh, three years in uh, mandatory service uh, and I was looking for a job and my grandfather was uh, in a nursing home uh, prior to it for a few years. And one of the um, organizations on the list at the manpower company was that nursing home. So I thought maybe it's a sign that I should just go and check it out. And so that started, you know, I started, started working there as a nurse aide and that started, I've been in the aging field since um, 1994, so 27 years. Um, and yeah, so that's how it started. Yeah, and the, we'll give the cliff notes, but yeah, you worked in social work with low-income elders. Uh, you have a master's in gerontology. Uh, you got your doctoral studies in gerontology at, uh, at the University of Massachusetts. And we're fast forwarding a lot, but now you're the author of this book. Um, and it's also the subject of a lot of your research uh, is on harmful resonant to resonant interactions or <clears throat> DHRRI. Uh, is, is DHR, is there a, a faster way of saying that or is it DHRRI? That's perfect, thank okay. you. Okay. Um, yeah, so how did you stumble upon this particular subject, what was the inspiration? Was it um, something you noticed just anecdotally? Was it research you found or what? Well, I uh, did an early study uh, in 2007, 2008. Uh, It was my doctoral dissertation study in two care homes for people with dementia in an assisted living residence in Massachusetts. And um, I just, 
there was a 10-month observation study, and those incidents occurred on a daily basis. So that sparked the interest um, in this phenomenon. And is there a particular incident that comes to mind, or was it just that it was so routine? Well, it was mostly the, the impact that these incidents made on residents with dementia. Um, and um, it was, uh, it left an impression on me. And, I, and then I went and checked the research literature and I found that at the time there were only a couple of uh, studies published in, in English uh, on this phenomenon. And uh, none of them was in assisted living uh, that operates uh, dementia care homes. And so I thought, oh, there's a gap in the research here. So I um, kind of started my focus and I kept it until today. Why do you think that gap existed? Well, people who work in the field, nurse aides and nurses and social workers, uh, will tell you that this phenomenon is not new at all, actually. It, you know, I, I actually have investigation reports like from 50 years ago and, and that show the exact same incidents taking place, residents entering other residents' bedrooms, uh, invading their personal space uh, and being harmed. And um, so it's nothing new. It's that research tends to lag behind practice. So uh, we've been, this, this is really, uh, and, and one of the ways that this, uh, the research uh, was, went on a faster track in, recent, in the recent decade, over the recent, uh, the last decade, is a groundbreaking study in Massachusetts where a, a group of researchers from Harvard um, examined uh, visibly, uh, visible injuries due to these incidents. And the scope of the incidents was alarming. Um, and then it was another group in Cornell, Cornell University, that actually uh, examined a, a community-based, population-based uh, data set. And they followed these individuals uh, in, when they move, when some, when a subset of them moved to, to nursing homes. And then they discovered that the number one reason police was called to nursing homes was resident to resident incidents. So that sparked a whole line of, res of, of research, of NIH grant funding. Um, and we've seen since we have over 40 studies now published. Was, uh, was some of your data coming from uh, like local police uh, law enforcement or was it mostly from the nursing homes or the assisted living homes? So my early study on this phenomena was based on my 10 months observation in those settings, uh, 10 hours a day, uh, equivalent of a year I spent in those two care homes. And I really learned about the emotional roller coaster that residents are going through and what actually uh, causes those incidents. And I'm sure we're gonna to get to that, but the, the, with regards to my latest, my, my more recent research on fatal resident rest incidents, because this phenomenon is not being tracked by CMS uh, in nursing homes, it's not captured in the MDS 3.0, which is the largest clinical uh, data set for care planning in the United States. 
uh, and it's not centrally centrally tracked in assisted living residences, which is the fastest growing residential care option for elders in the United States. I had to um, resort to non-traditional uh, means of data collection. So I um, conducted a I tracked a newspaper article from United States, Canada, Australia, and other countries. But I also uh, was lucky enough to find that in Ontario, Canada, the chief coroner of Ontario, they have a committee under law that uh, under the Coroner Act that are required required to examine uh, unusual uh, premature suspicious death in long-term care. Something I wish we had in the United States and maybe we do, but uh, and also part of it uh, was that they're required to publish uh, annual reports examining uh, those uh, death and what led to those deaths. Death and the mission of the coroner there is to prevent future death in similar circumstances. And so I was able to track down 25 years of those reports. Uh, and they're invaluable not only in the context of fatal residential incidents, but also in the context of other causes of, uh, of death that are preventable. I'm picturing you in a room with 25 years worth of reports, just papers everywhere, folders, different color coding. Although I imagine yeah. Gonna yeah, it would be fine. It would have been fun to show you the, the the cardboard boxes that I have downstairs in, in the basement. Yeah, it's taking up a lot of space. So hopefully yeah. you can get that on a on a USB drive and, and get those. Um, yeah, but yes. Yeah, yeah, but but it's, but I have the archive. And I'm always ready because I'm getting uh, requests from reporters, you know, not only the United States, but, you know, Canada, even from New Zealand. So, and I'm ready. They're asking me, so, you know, what about people with serious mental illness? What's their role in this? So I have investigation reports that can, so there, I, I, the archive is, has been proven to be very helpful uh, in uh, informing efforts to improve understanding of various aspects of this phenomenon. Right. Now, when this topic first came to my attention, I thought of DHRI strictly in terms of physical aggression. It's from reading your work um, and uh, yeah, from reading your research and other people's research, that's not the case. It's more expansive, correct? Well, there's different types, if you will, and there's different classifications, but you have the verbal psychological, sexual, physical. Um, and so um, there could be also bullying. Um, and so it's um, multidimensional. So, and, and oftentimes uh, more than one type obviously can occur at the same time. Uh, and there's also trajectories. So typically, it will, it will start with verbal and will move towards physical if, if it's escalated and it's not addressed in time. Uh, and sexual could be verbal too and physical, right? So it's not, uh, you know, you, you get you get the picture that it's it's more uh, dynamic in that sense. And also the way those incidents unfold uh, is fascinating, um, and it has implications for for uh, for prevention. Uh, one key example is that there's a tendency in the field to say who was the exhibitor and who was the target. 
And in reality, the boundaries are not always as straightforward as it may seem. Um, in fact, it could be several residents involved uh, and one residents, you know, initiated, so to speak, and other residents end up being in a, in a, a physical incident between them. Uh, there's just so many scenarios under which this can occur. And it's, it's much more complex. Uh, and, and one of the important things is to recognize that the vast majority of people with dementia um, uh, against common belief, I'm gonna say that because it's true, are not truly aggressive. They're not truly violent and they're not truly abusive. Uh, unfortunately, we keep labeling them in the practice and research and policy uh, literature uh, and laws even, uh, and we're doing disservice to this population and we are limiting opportunities for meeting their human needs and for uh, prevention. Yeah, and I think I, uh, something that's written in, in the book, and it might be in the, the film, which we'll discuss later, is these incidents happen when the residents' uh, physical, social, and other needs are not being met. Is that the why these incidents occur? Well, well, I want to kind of take a step back and share an overarching term that I really, it took me years to land on it. Uh, and that's the name also of our film. I don't, I don't need to talk about the film now, but uh, it's it's if you would. And that's how I, I fin. I, I, I the last words of the of the book, basically, uh, if I if if I had three words to describe the book, uh, they would be fighting for dignity. Residents with dementia are fighting with each other in an effort to preserve their dignity. Um, and when you look, and that's also why I, I use the term interactions in the, in the title of the book and not aggression and not violence and abuse or mistreatment, because when you look closely at the interactions of people with dementia, uh, you see it opens up a vast canvas for, for, for learning that, uh, there's, there's simply seeking in the vast majority of situations, they're seeking emotional security. They're, they're trying to cope with a serious brain disease in situations that may be perceived by them as very distressing, often frustrating, and frankly, uh, scary, uh, frightening. And um, in, in environments that are often um, don't feel like a home, don't look like a home, uh, tremendous understaffing, as we know, and lack of training, including not only direct staff, but also managers. Uh, so, and they're being, for all practical purposes, forced to live with uh, strangers 24-7 uh, in often in crowded environments and people with serious brain disease and other conditions, or share a bedroom. You know, people who may have never shared a bedroom, never shared a bedroom with a stranger, or perhaps they shared a bedroom when they were in college in the dorms, uh, but they haven't done so for 60, 70 years. And now we're assuming that that's okay when this is their, their home and this is their, literally their last frontier of privacy. And they're sharing bathrooms and they're sharing bedrooms. And it's, um, it's uh, often inhumane and it, it contributes to those incidents. And as we learned during the pandemic, it also contributes to deadly infections. 
you have a section in your book, uh, your language matters section. Um, just going back to what you said about exhibitors, um, I know you, you avoid using the term perpetrator, but why specifically with the word exhibitor, um, what's the uh, importance of, of using that word and not using and avoiding perpetrator? Can you? Well, uh, most people with dementia don't in, in long-term care or in the community, they don't wake up in the morning with a premeditated in, intention to injure or kill another, another uh, person, another resident. Um, they are reacting, responding, protecting themselves. And when somebody, so one of the fascinating, I'll, I'll try to answer the question through empirical evidence in three studies, the only three studies uh, that examined fatal residential incidents. Um, mine, the first one was in Australia. The second one was mine in, in the United States and Canada. And the third one was in the United States only nursing homes. And when you combine the findings in terms, I was interested in the nature of the physical contact that led to the, the physical injury. What those three studies show, it, it varies roughly between 40 and 60% uh, kind of uh, hovering around the half of fatal residence incidents. The nature of the physical contact that caused the harm was uh, what, what we classify as pushful incidents. So a single push could be more than more than one push, of course. But uh, so if let's say uh, you have you have dementia, or I don't wish you to have dementia. Let's say I have dementia, and you um, we both have dementia, and you invade my personal space repeatedly 15 times over uh, the next 10 minutes. And at first I ask you, could you please, you know, I don't feel comfortable in your presence. Can you please leave? And you're just trying to, I'm try, just trying to read my newspaper or to eat or whatever. And the emotions start to build up and I get more frustrated and more frustrated. And you don't leave, you keep coming back. And at some point I reach a breaking point and I push you away because I can't, tolerate it anymore and I can't process it anymore and staff are not around because they're either understaffed or they're busy doing something else so if I push you away am I a perpetrator I don't maybe that helps to, a little bit to understand now even the, the the group of researchers in Cornell University that you know use this term perpetrator and they they call this phenomena elder uh, resident resident elder mistreatment they themselves recognize in writing in their publications that even the exhibitor for again a lack of a better word because it's not a perfect term and language is evolving it's good um, even the, the exhibitor uh, when the exhibitor has a serious brain disease um, their needs are also important and if we address their needs the likelihood that they will engage in these incidents will be reduced. And they're not really perpetrators in the traditional sense in which this term has been used in our society. They're not abusers. Now, that being said, it is very important to qualify that even though people with dementia, the vast majority are not aggressive, the outcomes of those incidents could be devastating, it could be physically, emotionally traumatic. You, could, you have a lot of um, physical injuries such as um, hip fractures and brain injuries, 
it can escalate, can uh, develop, the person can develop medical complications and die. So I, do, I wanna make that distinction that even though it's not abuse and it's not true aggression in most situations in the context of this population, the outcomes could be as traumatic and tragic. And that leads me to another important point, which is the real story here is a story of neglect. It's either a story of neglect by the long-term care home and or staff members. And that's the real story that um, I hope that the book will help uh, raise awareness and increase recognition of. Because it's so easy to say, oh, they have dementia, they're aggressive, blame the victim, blame in that sense of the victim of, of, of having Alzheimer's disease, so to speak. Um, so uh, there's, there has to be a paradigm shift towards uh, reframing this phenomenon uh, as, a, as, as neglect, not, uh, first and foremost. Yeah, there's examples in the book uh, and uh, in Fighting for Dignity where it seems the environment that uh, the parties involved are in um, makes uh, some of these incidents, some of these interactions almost inevitable. Uh, when that environment is short-staffed or when there is a resident who is abruptly moved from room A to room B and when, um, as you said, when they are being neglected, uh, it's, I don't want to necessarily call it a rational response. Uh, maybe it is a rational, but it, it seems like when you um, give these incidents context, they make a lot of sense for any human, whether they're um, uh, elderly, young, uh, whether they have dementia, whether they don't have dementia. Um, it, at least for me, that that context uh, is helpful for my understanding. Absolutely. For decades, we, um, you know, researchers, practitioners, we we use terms during a personal care such as bathing of people with dementia. We use terms such as aggressive, violent, abusive, and then came video-based studies that show second by second what actually happens. You know, it's one thing when you do when you when you do interviews with staff or you know. Uh, I'm not saying they're not credible, uh, uh, but when you do the gold standard is direct observation and, 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 and even more important is to conduct video-based studies. And when you look second by second what actually happens, uh, again, the theme of dignity, which is a kind of an umbrella term for what's actually happening there. So when people with dementia sense that their dignity is under threat, uh, they may not be able to say it in words in a certain stage of the disease, but they will react uh, with behavioral expressions that are sadly and mistakenly for the most part being labeled as aggressive. And then uh, very sadly, the slippery slope of antipsychotic medications uh, starts. And once the person is sedated, then you really have trouble identifying the human needs that uh, the unmet human needs that drove the behavioral expression to begin with. And that's a whole, the antipsychotics are like a whole another, a whole another subject and topic that's entirely related to this, um, the, but there's just so much to it. Um, yeah, but can it, I just add real quick about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
it is related. I'm glad you said that it's related because if you reduce, even if you reduce, successfully reduce antipsychotic medication in people with dementia, which I know there's a CMS campaign and you know there's measure of success in various states, but it's not perfect. And some states do better than others and some parts of states do better than others, but still you need to be able to equip staff with knowledge and skills to know how to uh, understand, prevent, and de-escalate these um, incidents. And resident to rest incident is one of the primary reasons why people with dementia are being physically and chemically restrained in long-term care homes. So you can't, you can't have the campaign without, without the second part. You can't just reduce and hope for the good. These resident to resident incidents, they affect the residents, but they also have far reaching uh, consequences, the families, the staff, the taxpayer, if you want to get really broad. Um, and the film, the aforementioned film, Fighting for Dignity, is uh, it's a 20 minute documentary, which I think it complements the book because uh, the book is replete with data and research where this film uh, adds color and narrative and graphic uh, video and images and really um, emotional um, comments and, uh, and voices from family members uh, who are uh, involved in these, in these resonance, who are uh, um, involved, but who are impacted by these resonant to resonant Incidents. So just a quick summary, the film uh, offered highlights a few distinct, uh, albeit thematically consistent examples of resonant to resonant uh, incidents. And one of them, if you, you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of them involves a resonant named James Parker, who suffers a devastating injury after an, an incident involving another resonant and it results in James suffering a terrible injury. Um, Casey, if you could play a, the, a clip from, uh, from the documentary, and then Elon, I'm gonna have you discuss the significance of this example. I'm trusting these people with my dad. And for you to know that he had this type of history and to put him in the room with a vulnerable adult, that makes me angry. Where were they? Thanks, Casey. Um, so, so that was a clip from the daughter of the, the resident. And my takeaway was that this incident was predictable. Uh, in a sense. Yeah, well, first, uh, thank you for mentioning the film. And I want to thank also Joe Pollock and uh, uh, Jim uh, Vandenbosch. Uh, Joe Pollock uh, has uh, his company in, in Minneapolis and, and Jim Vandenbosch is the founder and director of Terra Nova Films that helped us. And uh, Kali uh, Bliss, they did the voiceover, and obviously my colleague Judy Berry from Minnesota, who is a national expert in prevention of, of many of those incidents. But um, so, you know, first of all, why did we do the film? I want to just take a, a quick, because you know, it's one thing to share statistics, and so another thing to it's one thing to 
write an article. It's even one thing to write a book, but it's another thing when you can actually see for yourself on video, the impact that these incidents are making, not only on residents, but also on their family member, the real devastation. And that's why we did the film because we wanted the public and policymakers that those emotions will resonate with them and hopefully it will encourage them to start taking this phenomenon seriously. But, you know, as in the case of, um, I should say now the late uh, James Parker, oftentimes uh, when you examine those uh, injurious and fatal incidents, what you find is early warning signs in the months, uh, weeks, days, hours, sometimes minutes prior to the incident. And in the majority of those incidents, you, when you look closely, as I have done, you will identify situational triggers in the majority of the situation, which means that they are potentially, the majority are, are, are preventable. Those incidents are preventable. And in this case of James, the same thing happened. Um, the, the family reported that they were begging management to change the bedroom because James was concerned for his safety. And he in fact gave a report later on that he, he said that, um, he said, if I have to stay one more night with this man, I will kill myself. Uh, and the daughter reported that a room change was still not um, being done. And so uh, I know I'm holding an in investigation report here from Minnesota that just posted a few days ago. And for six months, there were warning signs. And two residents with dementia, it was, and, and one resident with dementia uh, was exhibiting these behavioral expressions towards uh, different residents, including her, and no intervention, no documentation, no supervision, no reporting. The interventions were uh, really old culture of dementia care, uh, locking the hallway and locking bedrooms doors. And the daughter said of the woman who was uh, pushed and injured and she died a month later, that her daughter said, if there were interventions, uh, my mom could still be alive today because they had all the warning signs that this is about to happen and it still happened. And it breaks your heart. You know, I've been uh, examining, tracking and examining these incidents for years now. And incident that occurs in Melbourne and in Ireland and in St. Paul, Minnesota and in, in Connecticut uh, are often strikingly similar. So, but we still hear, oh, it's unpredictable. What can you do? They have dementia. And that's the narrative that I hope uh, the book would have help change. Uh, because when you do it right, you can prevent the vast majority of those incidents. Now, so much of this is out of the family's control. Um, and the uh, example we just, I just raised the daughter knew about the risks, he tried um, to prevent it. What advice would you have for people to kind of act in this imperfect environment um, when you might not get a response, when uh, staff might not listen to you? What, what can people do? 
to mitigate some of the risk. Are you are you referring to family members? Yeah, to family members. Yeah. Well, um, I would say become informed. It, by that I mean, to the extent that you have energy left to do it, uh, learn about the risk and protective factors, become an advocate, visit as often as you can, document things, work collaboratively with staff, build trusting relationship with staff, appreciate their hard work, demand that the, the owners and administrators will provide specialized training and understanding, preventing and de-escalating these incidents. And if it's not done, learn it yourself, become uh, a, a coach. Because you know families must become in, in the best standards of care. Uh, families should be an integral part of the care team. Um, and uh, you can become an educator for the staff and the nurses and, and social workers and work with them. And, uh, and it, that being said, some environments are not receptive and they're very defensive and they're feeling uh, they're being criticized, etc. cetera. Uh, so you need to assess the risk. You know, my book has a companion uh, online manual companion that will have several um, instruments. One of them uh, helps assess the risk uh, that these incidents can uh, pose. And if you, you have to trust your instincts as a family member and you have to double check and you have to visit at different times and you have to talk with other family members. And uh, there comes a time when you may need to place uh, a camera. Uh, if uh, you don't get the cooperation and the responses to your concerns are not being addressed adequately in a timely manner. If you believe that your loved one is at risk, then, uh, and you don't get the response that you want uh, for your loved one to keep him or her safe, uh, you may need to consider a change in environment. And I'm not saying it lightly. It could be traumatic to people with dementia. Uh, but there are times when the environment is so dysfunctional that uh, you may need to do that. Um, and there's professionals that can help you navigate that process. It's, it's, it's difficult enough to have a person with dementia uh, that you're worried about in general. It's, it's, it's very hard when these incidents occur. And it, it's not only for the family of the resident on the receiving end, so to speak, for the lack of a better word. A lot of families of residents who are the exhibitors uh, are also very concerned. They're concerned that the loved one will harm somebody else. So there's guilt, there's anxiety. Did they do make the right choice? They need emotional support. So, but it has to be in a, you know, the first step is to try to do it in a collaborative way. And if it doesn't work, there's also ways to report things uh, to the state survey agency, to the Ombudsman for long-term care um, and to police. Uh, and I mean it because again, Many times those incidents are actually neglect, but we have to remember that uh, while ombudsman is critical entity and state survey agencies are critical, have critical role and police officers as well. Uh, the reality is that many of those state survey agencies are very weak and those ombudsman pro programs are very weak, but families don't know that and they lose a lot of time. So find someone who can help you navigate that in the most efficient, effective and timely way before harm occurs. Thanks. And as a reminder, the book is called Understanding and Preventing Harmful Interactions Between 
Resonance with Dementia. It's coming out in August. Uh, the publisher is Health Professions Press. Uh, we'll put the link in our show notes. Uh, Ellen, is there anything else about the book, um, about finding the book you want to mention? To- I know I just want to thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I just hope that those who will read, those individuals who read the book will, will see that there's another way. Because I know that there is another way to understand, prevent, and reduce those incidents and keep as many elders living with dementia uh, safe, which is their human right. Uh, it's the human right and federal right to live in safe care environments. Okay, great. And before we let you go, we got our guest recommendation. So I'm going to ask you for one item, but it's a book, a movie, a film, a painting, a song that's long-term care related and one item that is not long-term care. Well, I think this is really cool. It's a great tradition and I love that. And thank you for doing that. Um, So with an item related to long-term care is an organization that is dear to me uh, beyond LTCCC, of course, is Elder Voice Family Advocates and their website. Um, and this is a group of uh, mostly women uh, who had their parents um, severely neglected or abused or financially exploited in long-term care homes. And uh, they learned that when they join forces, they can uh, make an impact. Uh, and I'm saying those words, they really, uh, I mean, they really turned their grief uh, into uh, healing empowerment and uh, real change. When I say real change, uh, this group, Elder Voice Family Advocates, spearheaded with a group of other consumer-based organizations in Minnesota, they were able under incredible sacrifice, personnel, professional, uh, to uh, enable the first licensure in assisted living in Minnesota to pass. And the rulemaking process. Uh, they were very involved in that too. And uh, uh, comes August 1st. Uh, so in less than three weeks, this assisted living licensure will come into effect. And it's largely because of this group that they were willing to share their deeply personal and traumatic stories uh, with the public, with the media, with uh, law, the legislators and, and lawmakers. Uh, so I'm very proud of them, and I think they deserve that credit. And their website is, uh, we've worked with, uh, with, uh, with this group before, it's eldervoicefamilyadvocates.org. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, so the second item? Second item, yeah, non, okay. non-long-term care. Right, non-long-term care. So uh, the second item is a book uh, that is called Quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Uh, it was written by Susan Cain. It's a New York Times bestseller. So uh, I'm an introvert. And uh, I found this book to be uh, affirming, validating, empowering, uh, really celebrating uh, being an introvert. Uh, removing the stigma of being introvert in our society and uh, truly liberating. Um, and 
the book um, not only outlines some of the characteristics of um, uh, people who are introverts throughout history, uh, ancient history and in a recent history. Um, and um, I found the book really uh, compelling and affirming uh, my experience and experience probably of millions of people. Uh, and the book reviews dozens of compelling and inspiring stories of introverts and their um, uh, incredible contributions to their communities and societies. Uh, I can, the, list, the list is long, but I will just mention a few from Rosa Parks to uh, Stephen Wozniak, uh, to Dr. Seuss, and Eleanor Roosevelt. You know, uh, there's many more. Uh, and for those among us who are introverts, I really recommend the book. It has made, um, you know, a big impact on me. And it, it uh, allowed me to be more myself, as opposed to trying to be somebody else. I'm wondering if the author uh, is an introvert, uh, Kane. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, that figures. Uh, well, well, thank, thanks for the Rex and thanks for the interview. We're excited for your official book launch and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Uh, you guys are doing great work at LTCCC and always good to see you, Eric. Right. And now Casey, good to meet you too. <laughs>